I thought today, recently I've been out promoting my new book, Mathematicians in Love, and, I've, and also I have two new books, that Mathematicians in Love, a novel, and Mad Professor, a book of stories. And uh, at the other appearances, I've been focusing on reading, and I thought today I, I would do something a little different and talk more about my life as a writer. And I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to say, but when I'm done, then, then I'll know. Uh, I, when I was growing up, I, uh, I always wanted to be a scientist, but I also really liked to read. I liked reading science fiction a lot. And uh, I think for me, the, the book that was sort of a turning point, there was a book by the author Robert Sheckley called Untouched by Human Hands, a book of stories. And he, uh, I was also reading the usual kinds of science fiction, Heinlein and Asimov. And, uh, but there's something about Sheckley that it sort of opened some door in me. And I thought, this is something I would like to write like this. And the thing that I liked about his books were that the characters were sort of like real people. And they weren't these impossibly intelligent people or especially good people. They were, you know, sneaky and full of self-doubt. Uh, there's a famous story of his that I've been thinking about this week, actually. It's a story called Specialist. And there's this alien spaceship, and it's actually, it's like an organism. It's sort of made of a bunch of aliens that are uh, sort of stuck together. And some of them are, they're symbiotic sort of things. And some of them are the engine, some are walls, one is the eye, one is the thinker. One is the talker who plugs into all the others and helps them communicate with each other. And a photon storm kills their pusher, which is the, the alien guy who's responsible for making them go faster than light. And so they limp to planet Earth and land, and there's some guy camping, and they pick him up and bring him into the spaceship and say, okay, we recognize the type of alien that you are. You're a pusher. You need to push our ship to faster than light speed. And he, being a Sheckley character, is, you know, completely dubious and, and frightened and anxious. And then somehow he realizes he knows how to do it by reaching down into his fear and doubt. And that struck me as such a, a perfect touch, fear and doubt, this well of fear and doubt that he found within himself. Because a lot of times when science fiction writers write, in a way they're writing about writing. Uh, and in a way it's... The thing that lets an author push faster than the speed of light and get out there is maybe to some extent a well of fear and doubt within themselves where you're anxious about reality and you want to try to write about a better world. And uh, I often actually end up when I'm writing, I very commonly in my books my characters leave this world and they go into another dimension, or they go, uh, they fly somewhere, and they travel to a, a different world. And in a way, that's a symbol of what I'm doing when I'm writing a novel. I'm leaving this world, and I'm going off into the world of my novel. And so that's, uh, I like to do that. I started writing um, science fiction, well, I guess the first novel I wrote was about I was about 30 years old, and uh, I had been writing mathematics papers. I got a PhD in set theory and mathematical logic, and uh, 
it's you write a paper and it takes you about two years to get it published and then if you're lucky maybe one other person reads it and then I, I got this sort of I managed this place of science fiction story somewhere and I had this little taste of it I thought well gee this is going out and it's being read by you know maybe thousands of people and they pay me you know they don't pay me much but they pay me something and I don't have to go to conferences and, and kiss butt to get them to buy it. They're just going to buy it, you know, because they like it or they don't like it. And I thought, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look into this. And so then I, I started my first science fiction novel. At first I couldn't sell. It was called uh, Space Time Donuts. And then uh, I wrote another one. It was actually serialized in a, a short-lived magazine called Unearth, and they were devoted to the premise that they would only publish authors who had never been published before. Although once you've been published in Unearth, you were still eligible to appear again <laughs> in Unearth. And uh, actually some of the most famous writers in the field got their start there. Uh, William Gibson first published on, in Unearth, Paul DeFilippo, and me. And they're going to serialize my novel, Space Time Donuts, that none of the paperback houses were buying. And they put out the first two parts, and then part three, they, they went under. Little magazines don't usually live that long. They're like hamsters or white mice, <laughs> you know. But uh, then I ran into somebody years later who'd read the two parts. I said, well, you know, there was supposed to be a third part. And he said, I thought it ended sort of abruptly. <laughs> But uh, but then I uh, I was sort of lucky. Then we were living in upstate New York, and I got a a grant from the German government. They have this thing called the von Humboldt Foundation, and they uh, they pay researchers from all over the world to come to Germany and work there at a university. And it's it's sort of like the Germans are trying to buy goodwill which they always are in short supply of, <laughs> unfortunately, for Germans. Well, my mother's German. I have plenty of goodwill towards the Germans. But um, so I was happy to go there. And best of all, I was working on this incredibly hard problem in mathematical logic called Cantor's Continuum Problem. And I got there, and I pretended to be working very hard. And then I realized the, the head of the Mathematics Institute, as far as he was concerned, him getting me, helping me get the grant to come there, my duties were ended because now I was funded, the institute was funded. He didn't actually give, care what I did while I was there. And that slowly dawned on me and also the fact that I was not going to solve the continuum problem. I mean, Kurt Gödel wasn't able to solve it and Rudy Rucker wasn't going to solve it either. So uh, I said, well, I'm going to write a novel about the continuum problem instead. And so I wrote a novel called White Light, and that was about somebody that leaves his body and travels infinitely high. He finds this mountain that's infinitely high, higher than infinitely high. You go through infinitely many levels, and there's more of it. And then you go up another infinitely many levels, and there's still more. And it just goes on and on. And it's actually a model for what I'd been studying in set theory. In set theory, there's this infinite sequence of numbers. And so that was when I really started having fun with my science fiction, because I could take these complicated ideas that I'd learned in science and say, okay, now I'm going to take people, and I'm not going to put like pompous, stuffed shirt, Asimov-type scientists in there, 
I'm going to put the, the scuzzy hippie types that I hang around with in there, in this world. I'm going to have uh, like real people, and they're going to have sex, and they're going to smoke pot, and they're going to curse, and they're going to listen to rock and roll. And, uh, and I, th that was what I wanted to do. And the book did get published, and it, it did pretty well. It got some really good reviews. And then I wrote another book for the same publisher called Software. And that also, I had this two-year grant in Germany. I extended it for a year because I didn't have a job to go back to in America. Uh, I always had trouble finding academic jobs. But, uh, and then, so I wrote another novel there called Software. And that was about, there's an aging uh, computer scientist. He's having heart trouble. In this case, I actually modeled him on my father, who'd had a series of, he'd had a bypass on his heart. And this was like in 1980, so he was one of the very first people to have a coronary bypass. Or not one of the very first, but it was the first few years they were doing it. And it was a, nowadays it's like your neighbor will go in and then he's back two days later. He's, oh yeah, I got a quadruple bypass, you know. But then it was like, you know, they open him up with a saw, you know, and it was just a really big deal. And, his personality really changed, and he had this big scar down his chest. He left my mother. He was just, he was just out of it. And so I wrote a novel about a guy who looked like my father, where the robots sneak him off to the moon. He, he designed the robots, so they're grateful to him. They want him to live forever, but he has a bad heart. So they sneak him to the moon, and then they open up his skull and eat his brain, which is a great scene. And then... Uh, then by that, they extract all the software out of his brain. And this, this is 1980. Back then, nobody even knew what the word software meant. You know, it wasn't like a word you hear all the time. And then they made a robot copy of him and then took the software they've gotten out of his brain and put it onto the robot copy. And so then there was a robot copy of him. And that's an idea that probably you've seen ideas like this in science fiction movies and, and even on Star Trek. But when I wrote this book, nobody had ever thought of this idea. I mean, it sounds like an obvious idea now, but curiously enough, it took me, I, it was like really hard for me to wrap my mind around the idea of this happening. The idea of software is so unfamiliar, but the idea that you could take somebody's personality and put it on another platform, like, whoa, that's just so complicated. But it was, uh, and that book did really well, because people were, it sort of, it was something that was in the air, and people hadn't even known it was in the air, and I got a, an award for it the Philip K. Dick Award. And uh, then these guys started calling me and came to my house. And they were writers about five years younger than me. And they said, well, we're the cyberpunks. And we're, there's a new kind of science fiction. And even though you didn't realize it, you're a cyberpunk science fiction writer. And now you're one of us. And I was like, cool, you know. Cause, I always really admired the beatniks, and I thought it was great how the beatniks hung out together and kind of helped each other and wrote similar kinds of things. And being in with the cyberpunks, it was William Gibson and Bruce Sterling and John Shirley, and at that time Lou Shiner was involved, though he's sort of fallen, fallen away from the true faith. Um, and they, they were guys I really enjoyed hanging out with. I loved their writing, and uh, it, was, it was really nice. And so that was something that gave me a lot of strength to continue in my science fiction career. And I wrote uh, actually three sequels to software. I wrote software, then wetware, then freeware, and then realware. And uh, 
Then uh, there's also other kinds of books I was writing at the same time. Because there's sort of a vein I'd started with White Light, which was to write about my own self. Like White Light was sort of about a, uh, a mathematics professor who knows he's about to lose his job, and he's trying to solve the continuum problem, and he doesn't know how to do it. And he has a wife and a baby. And uh, so the guy was in some ways a lot like me. He lived in the same town where I lived in upstate New York. And so I, I wrote a lot of science fiction novels using that m method of taking things in my real life and in some sense making them into science fiction. And that I, I, I made up a name for that genre of science fiction, uh, transrealism is what I call it. Realism, but then trans, because it's taking your real life and kicking it up a level by putting it into science fiction. And uh, to me, that's a very fruitful way of writing. Philip K. Dick uh, was sort of a trans-realist science fiction writer. Like his book, that was a movie this year, um, Scanner Darkly. It was, uh, it was basically about a period when he was living in uh, like San Rafael with taking a lot of uh, speed and then he and living street people living in his house with him, which you know doesn't sound very glamorous, but he transmuted that into a novel about a guy who's a double agent and doesn't realize it, and it was it's a very cool novel. Anyway, um, so all these years, uh, although I've published about I think 28 books, I still don't get a huge amount of money for my books. Uh, there's a very strong power law distribution in how authors get paid. Like if here's the, if here's Stephen King, you know, and you know, he's getting a million dollars a book, and then the second guy is getting a hundred thousand, and the next guy is getting ten thousand, the next guy's getting a thousand, and the next guy's getting a hundred dollars. It's just like it's incredibly, and I used to be really bothered by that curve, but I looked into it. And it turns out it's called inverse power law distribution. It turns out everything in society is distributed that way. There's always like 10% of the people have 90% of the money. Okay, in Hollywood, 10% of the people, 90% of the roles. And I used to be bitter about it when I was younger. <laughs> and but now I've given up. Uh, but and uh, but the way I paid the bills all those years because we had three children and you know braces, college. Uh, was was teaching, being a professor. And uh, most of the time, well, I was a mathematics professor for about half the time. And then when we moved to California 20 years ago, 1986, right before that, I had been a freelance writer for about five years. And that was a very fruitful period for me, but it was a little harrowing because I was pulling in about $10,000 a year. And uh, that, that wasn't going to fly with the kids, you know, coming up on the, the braces in college. Uh, but uh, looking back, I mean, braces don't seem like such a big deal, but at the time, I don't know, they're this, like, huge thing. But anyway, uh, but I came out here, and I left the chip into my heart, and I became a computer science professor. <coughs> I had the fortune to go to San Jose State, where they have, uh, it's a combined mathematics and computer science department. It was then. They, since then, they've divided it in two departments. But uh, they said, well, if you want to teach computer science, that's fine. I, I said, well, I've never had a course in it. They say, look, you've got a PhD in mathematical logic. You can learn anything. So it, it's true. Computer science is easier than mathematical logic. 
So I learned it by teaching it, and it was fun. I, I welcomed the opportunity. It was kind of a golden opportunity. I feel like I was very lucky. I came here in 86 where the wave was just building, and I got to be in on a lot of the developments. I even left teaching for a couple of years and worked at Autodesk, and I was involved with virtual reality and cellular automata and cyberspace and all these cool things, fractals, chaos. And it was, uh, it was a... a a great experience, and it gave me a huge trove of things to write science fiction about, too. Which is, uh, that's always, uh, I've always liked that, the kind of working, the zigzagging back and forth, where learning something, you know, kind of hard and difficult in science, and then going and turning that into a story. And, uh, and that's what I'm continuing to do. Uh, two years ago, actually, well, Arnold Schwarzenegger is actually... Somebody mentioned movie a little while ago. Uh, for 10 years, my novel software was under option at uh, a big studio in Hollywood. And uh, I would go there for meetings. And the guys were great. They were just classic studio execs. They'd say, all right, well, tell us the story the way you see it. So I started telling them. And they'd say, get to the third act before I have to kill myself. <laughs> They see every story as three acts. They're very, you know, classic Shakespearean. Uh, and but you got to get to the third act before you know his fanny itches or whatever. But anyway, this one time I went there, the guy having the meeting right after me was Arnold Schwarzenegger. And uh, yes, he is short. Okay, comes up to my shoulder. But uh, yeah, he's not very tall. But then he was there, they were making a movie called the, I think it was the fifth day, the seventh day. It's about a guy who goes home and finds a clone of himself at his house. And uh, then I went and saw the movie, and actually they'd taken the idea I mentioned in software that had been a new idea when I first made it, of grinding up somebody's brain and growing a body and putting it on a new body. Well, it turns out that was the main idea in that movie. So that was kind of discouraging. But then Arnold got to be governor, and I thought, well, at least we have a governor who knows what science fiction is. <laughs> and, then, and then he offered a golden handshake to San Jose State professors to, to give us an extra year of service credit if we would retire. So I got a golden handshake from the Terminator. And, uh, it was, I, I couldn't refuse that offer. And then, uh, so then I... Uh, and that was two years ago. And since then, I've just been writing science fiction, which is nice. Uh, in a way, I mean, I loved teaching. It was very stimulating, great to get out there and see all the people and the challenge of learning the new stuff. But it's, uh, I feel like, uh, I feel like I'm writing maybe better than ever. And I feel like I'm pushing it a little bit harder than I, I was in recent years. So I've been putting out a book a year recently, uh, or writing a book a year. Though, uh, and The Mathematician in Love is the one that's out right now. And that's sort of a trans-real book. It's about a couple of young mathematicians in grad school who fall in love with the same woman. It's not precisely trans-real, though, because now I'm 60, and nobody wants to read science fiction novels about 60-year-olds. So. <laughs> well, not many people do. 60-year-olds don't buy a hell of a lot of science fiction, believe it or not. But uh, so there I'm sort of, yeah. Thank you, Bill. So then uh, I make up, uh, 
I make up characters now. I finally learned that the characters don't have to be exactly modeled on me and my friends. I, they can be a little bit fabulated. Also, I can remember what I used to be like, which helps, and what my friends used to be. So, uh, it's it's nice. So that's.